to be lifted high, for you to be exalted. When we think about the story that we were just singing of how you came after us, how you ran after us in our rebellion, in our sin, and you sent your son Jesus into this world. Lord, if this story is true, it changes everything. And so this morning we ask, as we come in, we want you to draw us into your story. Draw us into the good news of the gospel. Draw us into fellowship with yourself in your love, in the grace of your son Jesus Christ, in the comfort of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we want our hearts to sing to you. We want our hearts to truly look at you and see with awe and wonder what you've done for us. Lord, then, and then if you've done this for us, what kind of God must you be? What kind of God must you be to love sinners? What kind of God must you be to come after us with your grace and your mercy? God, open the eyes of our heart. Allow us to see the depth of who you are. As we open your word, God, we pray you'd soften our hearts. Open us up to what you have to say. Lord, we don't, we don't need another message from this world. We don't need another message from man. What we need is a word from you, a word from your heart. And so give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. God, we ask that you would meet us here in this place. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen. As you're uh, taking your seat, I want to invite you to open up to the book of 1 John. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back. Uh, feel free to go, go and grab one if you'd like to have a Bible there in front of you. And we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. First John 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. 
God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not yet been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we, ha- we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of God. Uh, some of y'all that have, that have known me, uh, gotten to know me a little bit, would, would, would know that I am not a math guy, right? Math's not really my thing. It's not really my strength. I, I understand that for some of y'all, uh, math makes perfect sense. Math uh, wor- works for you. But it's always been pretty frustrating to me. Uh, you know, the most frustrating part about math is you get this problem, and you're working down through it, and you get to the end of, of your work, and you just know deep down in your soul that you do not have the right answer, and yet you have no idea where you went wrong. You begin to trace your steps, and you just, you just don't know. What, what step did I miss? What thing did I get wrong? What equation did I, did I mess up that has led me to the wrong answer? But one of the things that I think math teaches us about life is that the fundamentals are really important. That the steps that we take at the beginning, the steps that we take at the front, if we get them wrong, if we misunderstand the fundamentals of life, then we will end up in a radically different place with our lives. Uh, This morning, we're going to be talking about one of those fundamental things, one of those building blocks of life, that if we get it right, we'll understand life, and if we get it wrong, we won't understand life. 1 John chapter 4 that we just read is the most concentrated treatment of love in the entire Bible. Uh, Everybody values love. Everybody knows that love is an important thing, but here's the problem. We don't all define love in the same way. And so it's just like a math problem. If, if I'm over here and I think that one plus one equals two, and you think that one plus one equals four, we're going to end up with a different answer. And the same thing is true of love. You may say that love's really important. I may say love's really important. But if we don't define love in the same way, then we'll end up living our lives in radically different ways. So briefly, before we dive into the text, I want us just to see the importance of getting love right on three levels. So here's three levels that it matters of why we define love correctly. The first level is is the personal level. Every single one of us had this deep desire within us to be loved. We long for love, right? When When we find ourselves in environments where people are not treating us kindly, when people are not respecting us, when people are not caring for us the way that they should, we don't like that, right? We kind of naturally look for Uh, environments where we can surround ourselves with people who do care about us, people who do respect us, people who who love us. And the reason we do that is because we have this deep longing within us to be loved. But see, the the reality is is that God is actually the one who put that longing in us. And so it, it matters to us on a really personal level whether we get love right or not. A second level it matters is for the church. Right? There's a lot of confusion today about what Christianity is and what Christianity is not. There are some churches that, in the name of love, set aside truth. They're not so interested in getting it right because, because in the name of love, they, they, they just want to push the truth off to the side. But then, there's other ch- churches that in the name of truth, they set love aside. But neither of these make for a faithful church. 
And neither of these really understand true love as it's defined in the Bible. And so what's at stake with us understanding true love is whether or not we're going to be a faithful church. But then on a third level, what we see is the cultural level, right? I mean, it doesn't, it's not hard for us to see that our culture is infatuated with love, right? There's all, why is it this time of year? Like all these proliferation of cheesy movies about love. What is this? What is it in us that we care so much about love? We have these phrases like, love is love, and love is all you need. But again, here's the problem. What one person defines as love, as love, another person defines as a detriment to society. So how do we move forward? Thankfully, thankfully, by God's grace, he gave us 1 John chapter 4. God doesn't leave us to ourselves to try to figure out what love is. God in his grace actually shows us what true love really is. And so here we're gonna, here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at eight distinguishing characteristics of true love. Eight distinguishing characteristics of true love. From 1 John 4, the first is this. The embodiment of true love is Christmas. The embodiment of true love is Christmas. Let's read verses 1 through 3 again. John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. We ended last week in chapter 3 talking about how the Holy Spirit has an imprint. that That when He's in our lives, He brings certain things with Him. And here what John is trying to show us is that we can distinguish between the Spirit of God and false spirits by this, that the Spirit of God teaches us and proclaims that Jesus really has come in the flesh. The Spirit of God is the one who teaches us that Christmas is true, that Jesus' coming is a reality. But in the context of a chapter that is full of talk about love, we can't help but try to think about the connection. What's the connection about Jesus coming in the flesh and us understanding true love. You know, we we would have to think that these false prophets who John is talking about, one of the things they must be tampering with is the idea of love. If John is, from, by the way, from verses 7 to 21, going to talk about love 27 times, this must be something that he wants us to be clear on. This must be something he wants to distinguish between what these false prophets are saying about what, what true love is. So what does the confession that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh have to do with understanding true love? Well, here's the first thing that it it shows us. Love is not some nebulous term that you and I can make mean whatever we want it to mean. We can't just import whatever we want into the word love and define love that way. Here's why. Love has actually come in the flesh. Jesus Christ is came into this world at a particular moment in history, though he existed for all of eternity, at a particular time, at a particular place, Jesus was born into this world, and Jesus Christ is the embodiment of love. Jesus Christ is the definition of love. At our house, most evenings we read stories to our kids, and some of my favorite books that we have are these books that have little finger puppets inside of them. Maybe you've seen a book like this before where, you know, every page has like a, a circle that goes through it. And there'll be some animal, you know, some, a cow or a, or, a, or a lion or a tiger or something like this that you get to, uh, you know, kind of 
put yourself into the story. You know, you know as, as, the, as the dad reading it, I'm obviously outside of the story, but I get to come inside the story and I get to animate this character. I get to show my kids that a cow moves and that a tiger you know, eats other animals and that, that, that these animals act and live in certain ways. I get to embed myself into the story to show them what it's really like. And this, guys, is what we're celebrating at Christmas. That God in the flesh has come to show us what true love really is. That here in Jesus Christ, we have love in the flesh. And that's why these, these phrases like love is love might be the stupidest phrases in the English language. Love is love is meaningless. Love is love actually means nothing. Consider, for example, that let's say, for example, you never had coffee. And you came up to me and you said, man, what, what, is this, what is this you're drinking here? What is this coffee thing? And I say, coffee is coffee. How unhelpful would that be? You say, no, 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 no. Can you, can you describe it a little bit for me? Can you tell me what, it, what, what it's like? I say, no, no, coffee is coffee. And I just keep repeating that. Coffee is coffee. That wouldn't help you at all. But to say Jesus is love, that defines love for us. Jesus has actually come in the flesh. Jesus is a concrete, real, defined person in history who is love in the flesh. And so the first thing about true love is that the embodiment of true love is Christmas. Second this morning, the second distinguishing characteristic of true love is that the contrast of true love is the world. The contrast of true love is the world. Verses 6 and 7 say, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the, the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. One of the major themes throughout this book of 1 John we've been tracking through in December, one of the major themes is this idea of contrast. John is constantly trying to put true Christianity beside some false thing to show us what the reality is. What is Christianity all about? And here in 1 John 4, John gives the contrast to true Christianity a name. What do you call it? What's the opposite of Christianity? Here, John tells us four times that the opposite of Christianity is the world. This is his definition of the contrast to true true Christianity. Now, when we're talking about the world, here's what we have to be careful of. What he's not talking about is just like the material stuff. He's not talking about like the earth, like the place where we find ourselves. When John uses this phrase, the world, what he simply means is it's the pattern of life that runs contrary to God's design. So here God has a path, God has a plan, God has a design for how human beings flourish, but the world is the pattern of life that runs contrary to God's design. And for our purposes this morning, here's here's another way we could say it, that the world is the pattern of life that runs contrary to love. The world is the pattern of life that runs contrary to love. I want you to imagine that you're driving, and you're about to get out on the interstate, and you get on the ramp you know, to go down towards the interstate, you're speeding up, you're in the acceleration lane, and about the time that you decide to merge over from the acceleration lane into the actual highway, you lift up your eyes, 
and you realize that there are, the majority of cars are actually on your side of the road and they're driving at you. So you're in the lane, you're on the interstate, you're speeding up 60, 65, 70 miles an hour, and now all of a sudden you look up and all these cars are in your lane headed directly at you. Now, if you're anything like me, immediately you would think, oh my gosh, what have I done? You know, this is a terrible mistake. You know, I must have made a, b- a boneheaded decision. I'm going down the wrong way on, on the interstate. But then you look around and you realize, no, wait a second, all the signs are actually pointing you in that direction. Like you look over to the side, you look above you, and, and all the signs have you, you going the right way. You realize that it's you going the right way. You're the one who's actually driving the, on the right side of the road, and everybody else is driving on the wrong side of the road. John here in 1 John is trying to help us understand what it's like when, when God transfers us out of the world into the kingdom of Christ. What it feels like is we're now driving in the right direction. We're now driving according to God's design, but everything else around us is headed in the opposite direction. Everything else around us seems to be going the other way. And so John is trying to encourage us. He's trying to say, no, 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 you are headed the right direction. You are going the right way, and here's why. The world has a definition of love, but that definition of love puts self at the center of the universe. Here's what that means for us. The world, the pattern of life going in the the wrong direction, it actually is attractive to our flesh. It tells us, put yourself first. It tells us, put confidence in yourself. It tells us, do what makes you happy. This contrary design to God's way of life, it's all about putting self at the middle. And that's why it is the contrast to true love. John is trying to come come alongside us and he's trying to say, listen, the one in you is greater than the one in this world. The one leading you is the right one. That as you feel like you're tracking in a total opposite direction of everything and everybody else around you, as you're trying to say no to the lie that putting self at the center of the universe is what makes you happy, as you're trying to go the opposite direction, John's saying, keep going, keep going, following the Lord following his path, that is the way that in the end of history will be proven to be the right way. And so the contrast of true love is the world. And really this leads to our next distinguishing characteristic, that the source of true love is God. The source of true love is God. Verses 7 and 8 say, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. We know love plays such an important role in our world today. It's something that our culture is infatuated with. It's something that we all want to experience. So we have to ask this question, why are we this way? Why do we care about love so much? Why is love so important to us? But Only Christianity gives us a valid answer to this question. Because Christianity teaches us that the reason we care about love, the reason that love is so central, the reason that love is so important to us is because the one who made us is himself love. That our creator, the one who designed us, is love. Now when we say that God is love... We certainly do mean that God is loving. There's no one more loving than God. But it's more than that. It's more than that God is just loving. The reason that 
only Christianity has a valid answer for why you and I care so much about love is because this God, this one true living God from all eternity has been a trinity. Here in 1 John 4, it's one of the, one of the handful of uh, chapters in all the Bible where we see that there is one God and yet this God is the Father and this God is the Son and this God is the Holy Spirit. And the reason that God isn't just loving, but the reason that God in His very being is love is because for all of eternity, He has been the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Author Mark Jones write this, writes this in his book, God Is. He says, if there were no world and no universe, imagine it, no world, no universe, the persons of the Trinity would still have an infinite, blessed, unchangeable, eternal powerful love between them and inward love. The reason that God is the source of love, the reason that love comes from God, the reason that God is love is because He is the triune God. And that's the only thing that actually makes sense of why you and I care so much about love. So if God is the only source of love, if God is the true source of love, then what we have to examine in our own lives is whether or not we are seeking love from the source or whether or not we are trying to satisfy our longing for love in the wrong places. Are we seeking love from the source or are we trying to satisfy our deep longings for love in the wrong places? Um, I mentioned, I already confessed to you that I'm not a big math guy. Another thing I'm not, another thing I don't really particularly enjoy is going to the grocery store. You know, you go in, the reason, I've learned the reason I don't like the grocery store. The reason I don't like the grocery store is because I'm so prideful. You know, you go in and you know what you're looking for and you can't find it, but you're not gonna ask for help, right? That would just be against the code of, you know, your existence. And so you, you scan up and down and up and down and like, I'm so prideful, I've gone up and down every single aisle multiple times before, before I've actually stopped to ask somebody for help. But here's the real problem with this. The real problem is in your hunger and in your desire to find something to eat, you end up buying a whole lot of other stuff. As you scan up and down every aisle, things start to grab your attention. They design this thing, you know, on purpose like this, right? To grab your attention. And then you end up walking out, spending way more time and way more money than you would have if you would have just asked somebody. I'm talking to myself right now, obviously. So many times, guys, the reason we're dissatisfied in this life is because we know some, something in us deep down knows that what we're longing for is love, but we can only find love in the true source. We search for love in the wrong places. We try to satisfy our hunger for love with the wrong things. And we end up wasting our lives trying to fulfill the longing we have for love. Maybe it's we try to find love in our spouse. Maybe it's that we try to find love in our kids. Maybe it's that we try to find love in some other person or some other friends or family or someone, someone around us. We're seeking for love because God has implanted in us a love for Him. And what John is trying to do is just trying to point our attention and say, there is a source, there is an eternal, infinite love that you were made for, and it is God. Those longings that you have to be loved, those longings that you have for other people to care for you and serve you and be around you and respect you and support you, you are only going to find what you're looking for in God Himself. Now we turn to see the apex of love. See, this God who is love, he demonstrates, he demonstrates his love for us. And so forth this morning, the fourth distinguishing mark of true love is that the picture of true love is the gospel. The picture of true love is the gospel. 
Verses 9 and 10 say, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In Christmas, we do see that love is concrete. We do see that love is definable because in Jesus, love has come in the flesh. But if we want to see the pinnacle of love, if we want to know the apex of love, if we want to see the picture of love that is the most unbelievable, quintessential picture of love in all the universe, we must just simply trace the story of the gospel. God made us, He made you, He made me, He made all of us to know His love, to rest in His love, to find our life in His love, and then to reflect His love. But every single last one of us have turned away from God. We have rebelled against God. We have, in effect, said to God, I want to find love somewhere else. I think I'm better off without you. I think I know how to live life better than you know how to live life, and so I'm going to try it my way. And if God had wanted to, being the holy, just judge that he is, he could have condemned every single one of us. He could have simply given us what we deserved, walked away, and we would have been under his condemnation forever and ever and ever. But here John is trying to say, this is the apex of love. This is the greatest picture of love. This is the pinnacle of love. That instead of just condemning us, instead of just wiping his hands clean of us and walking away, God sent his son Jesus into the world to rescue us. That the very people who rebelled against him, God came and saved. And so here's how we see what true love is in the gospel. One thing is that you can measure true love by how much it costs. You know, we look at when somebody loves somebody and it was a, it was a huge sacrifice, it was a costly sacrifice. We see that as real love, deep love, meaningful love. And there's nothing that is more costly than the Son of God. For God to give His Son for us is the most costly love that has ever been witnessed in this world. And then uh, John clearly says, I love how he explicitly says in verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, <laughs> but that He loved us. See, when God loved us, it wasn't because we took initiative towards Him. It's not like we were leaning in towards God. It's not like we had taken a few baby steps towards God to show Him that we were somehow deserving of His love. No, God's Love for us is an initiating love. And here's what that means, guys. Here's the great picture of God's love, that God loves sinners. You know, it's commendable when anybody in, in this world loves somebody else. You know, if you love somebody who loves you back, I mean, we, that's good. That's commendable, right? If, if you love somebody who's sort of indifferent to your love, I mean, that is, that is admirable. I mean, we really respect that. But if you love your enemies... We honestly just don't understand that. We don't even have a category for that. Loving people who hate you, loving people who don't want you, loving people who would rather you not exist. And yet that is the love of God for us in Christ. That is while we were sinners, it's while we were saying to him, we can do better without you, that he came for us. And then notice how in verse 10, at the end of verse 10, he says he, loves, he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This love of God, it's an overcoming love. See, there was this great dilemma. God is just. God is a judge. We're all thankful for it. 
We're glad that God is just. We're glad that in the end, justice will prevail. That's a good thing. But that presents a dilemma for all of us. Because we all know we're guilty. We all know we've sinned against God. And so how is it that we're going to be forgiven? How is it that we're going to come back into relationship with God? And at the same time, God is going to uphold his justice. How can both happen? But this is the love of God. It's an overcoming love that at the cross of Jesus Christ, God executes perfect justice and he displays his perfect grace. God both carries out the just sentence that you and I deserve and he forgives us of our sins in Jesus Christ. This is God's great love. So here's the deal. In order for us to embrace and feel and know and experience the greatness of God's love, we actually have to admit our sin. If we keep our sins at a distance, if we redefine our sins as just mishaps, mess-ups, failures, mistakes, we'll never actually really sense the depth of His love. But if we look at our sins and we call them what they are, we understand that it's rebellion against God, we feel in our heart of hearts that we tried to live without God, we'd rather He be gone. And then we see what He did for us, that's when love really melts our hearts. I don't know if this is true of you, I have no idea, everybody's situation is so different. But for me, uh, the older I've gotten, the more I've appreciated my parents' love for me. You know, as I've gotten older, I think the reason is you start to, to kind of realize that life is hard and things actually are costly. And to show up and care for and provide and meaningfully serve somebody else, it, it actually takes a toll. And so as I've gotten older and I've seen what love really costs really grown in this admiration for my parents. You know, even just little things like maybe slipping me a $20 bill to, to go to the movies with my friends or showing up for me on, on a special day like my birthday or coming to my sporting events. I, I've realized as I've gotten older, like that actually took sacrifice. That wasn't easy for them to love me in those ways. And so as we think about God's love for us, it's when we realize the cost. It's when we realize what we, what we actually deserve it's, it's when we realize what our future could have been forever and ever and ever under the condemnation of God that it makes the gospel so sweet. It makes us realize that if God had loved us while we were sinners, if God came and rescued us while we weren't even interested in Him, this must be the greatest picture of love this world has ever known. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. So we've been talking some about the objective reality of God's love, but now we're going to turn pretty much the rest of our passage begins to talk about the subjective experience of God's love. And so the fifth, the fifth distinguishing characteristic of true love is that the, the experience of true love is the Spirit. The experience of true love is the Spirit. Verses 11 to 13 Say, Beloved, if God so loved us, we all also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is the experience of God's love because when someone becomes a Christian and they receive the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit actually brings the love of God into their heart. The only way we experience God's love for us is by the Holy Spirit. But then also the reason we experience uh, God's true love in the Spirit is because then the Spirit then animates us to be able to love others. So the only way we can actually love other people is through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is both our experience of God's love for us and He's our experience of our love for other people. And here's what John wants us to understand. Here's the great privilege that he wants us to feel, to sense, to know, is that just as Jesus Christ at Christmas became love in the flesh, that he became this concrete definition of love that we could see, that we could touch, that we could know, that we could hear, like John said back in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, Jesus became this concrete picture of love. What John is saying is that that same privilege exists for the people of God. That when the Spirit of God comes into our life and we actually begin to love one another, this invisible God who no one can see, He becomes visible. It's not the same as Jesus. Jesus is the essence of the love of God in flesh. But you and I become the image, the reflection of the love of God in the flesh. Um, I I talked earlier about this, um, you know, us reading books to our kids at night and the, the finger puppets and all that about how that picture, you know, how Jesus actually brings love to life. He animates love uh, in our world. But what we, we all, what we also have to understand is that this responsibility, this calling on our life is, is something that we have to steward well. See, uh, if I were reading the, the book to my kids at night, and the book's about a tiger, right? It's a little tiger book. And I were to put my finger in and start, you know, telling the story. And, and at certain points in the, in the book, I started saying, moo, moo. And then I moved my finger over at another point, and I started like munching on some grass and pretending like what tigers eat are grass. It would be sending some mixed messages to my kids. No, if, if I'm supposed to be embodying a tiger, if I'm supposed to be showing them what a tiger is like, then I should roar at certain parts in the book, and I should be eating something other than grass. Not grass. Tigers don't eat grass. They eat other stuff. And so when Christians take the name of Jesus onto ourselves... It's a great opportunity. It's a great privilege for us to reflect God's love to the world, but it's also an awesome responsibility to steward. Because if we take the name of Jesus unto ourselves and then we start living in ways that contradict God's way, if we, start, if we take the name of Jesus on ourselves, but then we live according to the way of the world, we actually confuse the world about who God is. We confuse the world about what God is like. John wants us to see this is a privilege, this is an opportunity. This sets the agenda for our lives, for our church, to take the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to exhibit to the world what God's love really looks like. But John wants us to press even deeper into the subjective reality of this, and so he, he just continues to press deeper and deeper. And so our sixth distinguishing mark is that the apprehension of true love is by faith. The apprehension of true love is by faith. Verses 14 to 16 say, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. Now, right from the start, I just want to say I've used this word apprehension, and and that word is actually used two different ways in the English language. You know, apprehension can mean uh, anxiety or trepidation or fear or something like this. But here the way I'm using it is to take hold of something, to apprehend, to, to grab hold of something. 
And here, John gives us such a powerful statement to understand what should our day-to-day experience be like with God. Well, here's what he says. He says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. John is telling us that the love of God is actually something that we must come to believe in. We actually have to come to a point where we actually trust that yes, in fact, he does love us. See, here's what can happen. We're living our lives, we're going about our day-to-day experience, and some suffering comes into our life. And suffering has this profound way of making us want to doubt the love of God for us. You know, because we think, if God really loved me, would he allow this to come into my life? If God really loved me, would this experience be happening to me? And so in the midst of our suffering, we're, we're tempted to doubt that God really loves us. And then sometimes we're going about in our life and we sin. We don't measure up to God's standard. We don't love other people the way that we should. And we begin to, our, we get, we begin to think to ourselves, could God really love me when I'm this bad? You know, maybe God used to love me when I was doing better. Maybe, maybe in the future when I clean up my act, maybe, maybe then he'll love me again someday. But could God really love me when I'm breaking his commands? Could he really love me when I'm guilty of sin? And then sometimes what causes us to doubt God's love is actually other people. We experience how other people treat us, and it makes us wonder, you know, if, if everybody else thinks I'm trash, then maybe God thinks I'm trash. If everybody else thinks I'm annoying to be around, and they don't want to spend time around me, and they're not nice to me, maybe God thinks I'm annoying. Maybe God doesn't want to be around me. And so sometimes believing the love that God has for us, it's hard. Our experience presses in on us, and it puts pressure, and we begin to wonder, could God really love us? But herein is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit takes our eyes and He moves our eyes from our circumstances, from our suffering, from our sin, from the way other people are treating us. And the Holy Spirit moves our eyes back to Jesus. And there in Jesus is the proof that God loves us. Maybe you're here this morning and you're in the middle of your sin Maybe you're in the middle of suffering. Maybe you have nobody around you who cares for you, who supports you. The Holy Spirit then turns your eyes and he says, look at Jesus. Do you wonder if God loves you? Here's Christmas. Here's God sending his son into the world for you. Do you wonder if God loves loves you? Look at the cross. Here's Jesus dying for you. And guess what? He's dying for you while you were a sinner. Before you ever even made one move towards him. Here is the proof beyond all shadow of doubt that God loves us. Not in anything in ourselves, not in anything in our experience, in Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you would say, yeah, I I don't believe in Jesus, I haven't trusted in the Lord. You may have come in this morning wondering if God loves you, wondering if God could love you. But here's how this worked for those of us who have come to know uh, the Lord. At some point in our life, at some point in our experience, the Holy Spirit revealed to us that Jesus died for us while we were sinners. That God already loved us way before we ever even thought about him or cared about him. And when it hit our hearts, and when it sunk in, that he loved me while I was a sinner, then the only thing that made sense after that was to trust a God who, who was like that. 
to say to a God like that, I'm yours. If you love me while I was a sinner, if you love me while I was in my rebellion, then I must believe in you. I must trust you. And then the next question becomes, how will trusting God's love change our lives? If we come to rest in it, believe it, enjoy it, how would it change our lives? So this leads to our seventh distinguishing characteristic, that the goal of true love is confidence. The goal of true love is confidence. Verses 17 to 18 say, By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You know, when I look back on my life, uh, there's a number of seasons when it felt to me like I was under evaluation by the people around me. Uh, I can think back on a time when I went through this job interview process, and it was kind of the first time that, that anything like this had happened to me, where the, the, the interview process lasted for months, and there was round after round after round, and you know, after about the third or fourth round, I started to just get really self-conscious. You know, I would go home, and it would just, I would just be rethinking everything, and constantly, did I say this right? Did I answer this question right? It just kind of felt like the pressure of the world depended on whether I said the right thing, or looked the right way, or acted the right way in the room with these, these other people. I can think back on other times when uh, maybe it was a sports team, and I just knew like my position on the team wasn't safe, and any day I might walk in, and my name was scratched off the list, and somebody else's name was in my place, and it just kind of, just kind of sucks the joy out of, out of, out of playing and enjoying sports. But maybe, maybe even more meaningful, we've all experienced this, where maybe there's some person, some relationship, and we just think, man, I'm, I'm just one wrong step away. I'm one mistake away. I'm one bad little thing away from this person just cutting ties with me and, and walking away forever. And, and what we end up doing is we, we kind of start to think that that's how God is towards us. You know, we know He sees everything. We know He knows everything about us, and we kind of start to think, maybe I'm, maybe I'm constantly on eggshells with God. Maybe he's just constantly evaluating my life, and he's sitting up there wondering, you know, is he going to get, to get it together today? Is he going to get on the right path today? You know, I'm just, I don't know about that Morgan guy down there. And we start to feel like this is God's main way of interacting with us, is by way of evaluation. Guys, here's what John is saying here in John chapter 4. He's saying, that's, that's actually not what God wants. God doesn't want us walking around on eggshells. God actually isn't trying to motivate us by hanging heaven and hell out in front of our lives so that we wake up every day thinking, I'm not sure where I'm going to end up, so I better live good today. That's not what God wants for his people. Jesus gave us something, one thing, just one thing, that he wanted us to do over and over and over and over again. Uh, tonight at our 4 and 5 o'clock services, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We're going to celebrate communion together. Here's this one thing that Jesus wants his people to do over and over and over again. And here's the reality, guys. When Jesus chose this one thing, this one thing that he wants his people to do over and over and over again, he didn't choose a symbol of his anger. He didn't choose a symbol of his justice. He didn't choose a symbol of his holiness. All those things are really important. But when Jesus chose the one thing that he wanted us to do over and over and over, one thing that we would never forget, that we would always remember, he chose a symbol of his love. He wants us to rest. He wants us to know. He wants us to believe. He wants us to have confidence, not confidence in ourselves. There's nobody who should ever have confidence in themselves before God. 
But God does want us to have confidence because he wants our eyes to be on Jesus. He wants us to look at our Savior, the one who came into this world at Christmas, the one who died on the cross for our sins, and for us to have confidence that, yes, he really does love us. And then that transforms how we experience those things we were just talking about. When I'm going through suffering, I don't imagine that God's up there whacking me over the head. I don't think that God's somehow punishing me for my sins when I'm going through suffering. Instead, when I'm going through suffering, I realize that I actually have God on my side. He's there empowering me, strengthening me, comforting me, and yes, maybe sometimes disciplining me, but always for my good. Never because he's tired of me, never because he's disgusted in me. He's working with me, helping me, growing me through my suffering. And then when I sin, knowing that I have confidence with God transforms how I respond in my sin. That I don't feel like I have to run and hide from God, or I don't have to feel like I'm the one who has to pay back God for some bad thing I've done. No, when I sin, I run back into his presence, knowing that he's ready, welcome. His arms are already around me before I even ran in there. To have confidence with God is not to have confidence with ourselves. There's, guys, there's nothing in this passage that is trying to pump up our self-esteem. There's nothing in this passage that's trying to minimize our failures and mistakes. There's nothing in this passage that's saying you really are just a special snowflake, like there's nobody like you, you're awesome. If you just believed in yourself more, that would fix your life. There's nothing in this passage about that. But this passage does give us confidence because it points us to Christ. It points us to Jesus. It says you have access with the Father forever, not because of anything in you, but because of your great Savior, Jesus Christ. That transforms how we experience life. And that leads us finally, we've been spending a lot of time this morning thinking about God's great love for us, but we finish now with our final distinguishing characteristic that the true, true love that we're looking for, the true love we see, the outcome of this true love is love. The outcome of this true love is love. Verses 19 through 21 say, we love because he first loved us. Again, you might be here today and you think, there's no way, there's no way God could love me. There's no way God could love me because I haven't been loving him. There's no way God could care about me because I haven't been caring about him. There's no way God could want to take an interest in me because I haven't been taking an interest in him. Guys, here is God's word saying, we've got it all wrong. His love comes first. His love precedes our love. His interest in us precedes our interest in him. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. God loves us first. He pours his love unconditionally out upon us first. And then when we've experienced his love, when we've tasted of his love, when the Holy Spirit has brought his love into our hearts, then we turn and we love others. And what John wants to finish with, the stamp he's trying to put throughout this whole chapter, 1 John 4, is not just that we ought to love. Yes, he's saying you we ought to love. That, that's true. But he's also showing us how to love. That the way God loved us, if God so loved us, then we ought to love one another. Uh, I mentioned last week that I worked uh, a couple summers at a camp at uh, Ridgecrest, the, the boys camp there. for I worked there for two summers. And it was really cool that I got to work there for two summers because the first, the first year, I kind of got the experience of being the outsider. Uh, you pull up the first day and 
you're just kind of nervous, you know, you know you're about to meet a whole bunch of people that you've never met before, and you drive up, and, um, you know, you, you see these, these groups of people, you know, groups of guys standing around laughing and talking, and, and you, you can just tell, like, they know each other, you know, they already have friendships, they've already established a bond, and, and so you just kind of immediately feel on the outs, but they've done such a great job at this camp. You know, they've, they've kind of instilled this culture where when somebody new walks up, when a new, a new guy walks up, they immediately just sort of break and they just they come after you and they wrap their arms around you. And within a few minutes, you just kind of feel like you're part of the family. You get to feel like you're, you're on the inside. You're, you're part of one of them. And so it was so cool the next summer when I got to be on the other side of it. And uh, I was already there and these new uh, counselors were driving in, and again, they had that same look on their face of fear, trepidation, feeling like they were on the outside. And, and then because I had been loved that way the year before, because I had seen how they came after me, how they wrapped their arms around me, how they made me feel part of the family, I knew how it was that I could go and then replicate that towards other people. I got to wrap my arms around other people. I got to welcome them in. I got to help them feel like they were part of the family. And here's what John is saying. He's saying it's not just that we learn that we ought to love, He's saying we learn from God how it is that we love, that we remember that God first took initiative towards us. And so in our love for others, we ought to be taking initiative towards others. We learn that if God's love towards us was a a gracious love, then our love towards others ought to be a forgiving love, a patient love. When we learn that God's love towards us was a costly love, a sacrificial love, we learn that many times what it means for us to love others is to lay our happiness aside, to put what would make us feel the best aside, to press in and put the other person above ourselves. And even as we heard this morning, sometimes what it's meant for God to love us is to be really honest with us, to tell us the truth. And sometimes that's what it looks like for us to love somebody else, to have the courage to care enough about them, not to sweep the truth off to the side, but to gently, humbly, carefully sharing the truth with them. So we started this morning talking about the importance of defining love. And um, in all honesty, I know I haven't actually given you a definition. So we look back through, we think back through, what exactly is true love? What is it? How, How do we define it? Well, here's true love. True love is seeking the good of others in a God-centered way. Seeking the good of others in a God-centered way. See, if we we have any other definition of love, if, if there's any other version of love where man is at the center, it's not true love. It's not real love. No, love comes from God. Love is shaped by God. And here's the most important thing. Love draws us to God. When Jesus Christ displayed for us the greatest act of love in the universe, he was reconciling us to God. And that is the mark of true love. That is love in the flesh, seeking the good of others in a way that draws them to God, in a way that is shaped by God, in a way that flows out from the heart of God. Seeking the good of others in a God-centered way. Here's what John has said. No one, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another... God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. On Christmas morning, Jesus became love in the flesh. Jesus Christ made love a concrete, definable reality in this world. And when his love floods our hearts, we get to be love in the flesh 
like him. We get to show the world who this God is, who is love. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes in our flesh, we'd rather put self in the center, but we thank you that you love us enough to show us that our true joy is found with you at the center. God, it's hard. This world drags us back towards the idea of self, drags us back towards believing that love is whatever we want it to mean. God, help us this morning to see true love, real love, as it is defined in Jesus. God, I pray for anybody here this morning who doesn't have confidence with you, who still wonders and doubts your love for them. God, would you turn their eyes upon Jesus? Would you set their focus upon the God who sent his son into this world for sinners? God, would you show them just how willing you are to pour out your love at cost to yourself? God, give us a confidence with you that changes our suffering, changes our sin, changes how we're treated by others. God, flood our hearts with the reality of your love that we might then turn and love others. God, don't let us settle. Don't let us settle for some false love, some fake love, some phony love. God, pull us into the real thing. Draw us into the real thing with you. God, now we ask to shed your love abroad in our hearts by your Holy Spirit within us. In Jesus' name we pray.